0: It's been my privilege to teach the class Academic Voice for many years here at Goshen College. Um, And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's the introductory speech and writing class that a lot of people are required to take here. Um, So I do say that it is a privilege to teach this class, even though it's hard to teach, it's a lot of grading and it's hard to take for sure. I see a lot of students out there nodding their heads. Um, But it's absolutely a privilege to teach this class because I get to meet such a broad range of students who would otherwise try to stay far, far away from the English department. Um, And I get to meet them and I get to know them and I also get to see them grow by the time they graduate here at GC. Um, That said, I just wanna say one more quick thing about the title. Of this convocation it's called the best of and there are quotes there around the best of um, because if we really did all the best speeches from fall of 2017 all the best personal story speeches we would be here all day um, maybe longer than all day there were so many good ones so I would look at this as a sampler of the best of speeches from Academic Voice in 2017. We're starting off with um, somebody who I'm very confident about starting with his story. It's an awesome story. It's a funny story. I think it's going to put everybody at ease. The only reason I'm kicking myself for putting him first is that his name is kind of a tongue twister, which I didn't realize until I tried to say his full name as I was practicing this speech. So here we go. Um, Welcome for our first speaker, Josh Shirk Sanchez.
1: Hi, my name is Josh Sherrick. I'm a first-year marketing student here at Goshen College. For those of you that don't know me, you may know my parents, Doug and Maria Sherrick, who are also professors here. So um, growing up, I always had issues with authority, an issue that was in no way diminished by having a respected college professor as a father. So we were always fighting growing up. I mean, looking back on it now, I sort of wonder sometimes if there was not like a single day that went by where we weren't fighting with each other, you know? Um, So because of this, I was always looking forward to growing up, becoming 18, and turning into an adult and being able to make my own decisions. So eventually the day comes, it's my 18th birthday. A couple weeks before, I decided to celebrate the day by going on a solo trek through the mountains near Harrisonburg, which is where we spend Christmas. So um, it's the night before the trek. I had gone out early in the day and I had bought some groceries for the trip. A uh, weird mix of uh, dry stock foods, cheap dry stock foods since I didn't have too much money at this point. And uh, since my parents didn't allow us to have too many junk food and junk, junky item foods in the house. Growing up, I'd also bought backpacking essentials such as uh, chocolate covered pretzels and granola bars and uh, fruit snacks and whatnot. <clears throat> so it's the night before, I've got my things laid out all over the floor. Um, I'm in Generally, I'm in a good mood right now, I'm listening to music, taking pictures with my new camera that I'd just gotten, and uh, I hear my dad come down the stairs, start to come down the stairs. And instantly I knew that he was going to come down to see what I was packing, what I was taking with me, just to make sure that, um, since this was one of my first times backpacking by myself, that I was taking the right things. And uh, I just decided in that moment that I wasn't going to have any of it, you know. I'm an adult now, I know what I'm doing, (laughs) there's no way I'm going to mess this up. Um, so I just decided in that moment that whatever he told me, I was just going to shoot it straight down. So of course he comes down, he looks around, uh, he asks me how I'm doing, if I'm excited, etc., etc. Uh, eventually he stops and I see this little all-knowing smirk slide across his face that tells me uh, he thinks he knows something that I don't. <laughs> so sure enough, a couple seconds later he says, you know, Josh, I realize that it's warm outside right now. Um, it had been an unusually warm winter at this point. But he says, what if it gets cold again? You know, it is the middle of winter. You should take more than just a sweatshirt and a rain jacket. And I told him, you know, no, it's fine. I want to pack light, you know if it gets cold outside, I'll just I'll tough through it. I'm a big boy now. I can do this." So he says, all right, all right, and keeps walking around. And then eventually he uh, stops again and says, again, I realize that the weather is decent right now, but what if it rains outside? You should probably take a stove to cook all, these, all this dry stock with. And I told him again, I want to pack light. I've seen plenty of survivalist videos online. I'm basically a pro at this point. If I need to, I can just uh, make a little fire in a tin can. Uh, So he says, all right, all right, and walks around, throws out a couple more suggestions, and then uh, eventually, I shoot them all down, of course, eventually he says, all right, well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow morning. So next day, I wake up real early. (coughs) My grandparents and my dad drive me out to the beginning of the trail, or where I was getting on, Appalachian Trail, near Shenandoah National Park, and, And I start, and those first two days were absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the sun was shining, it was warm. There were plenty of other walkers uh, on the trail, hikers on the trail that I could stop and connect with. And I just remember finishing each day uh, with just this deep sense of self-satisfaction, like I had finally made it, like this is what living was all about. But unfortunately, that second night got a little chillier, to the point where I was wearing all the layers I had brought, and I was, I was snuggled in real tight into this uh, mummy sleeping bag that I brought from home, and I was still shivering. I was still having a hard time falling asleep and staying asleep. So eventually, I just woke up at around 4.30, 5 in the morning, and just you know, told myself, there's no way you're getting any more rest. You might as well just get up and get an early start on the day. So that's, that's what I did. I got up, packed everything up, uh, realized at this point that I was running a little short on food. Uh, it had rained the night before, and the tin can idea did not work, so I had quite a bit of dry stock that i couldn 't use. <clears throat> but I told myself you know it 's fine. I saw on the map that there's a there 's a camp store around fourteen miles up the road you know you 'll hike there you 'll get there just after midday and you 'll buy some more food, maybe some warmer clothes, and uh, you can you can still do this so that 's what I did I set out uh, it was a pretty dreary morning. It was cold and wet and I was hungry, um, but I had this, this, this good mood about it. I had this good feeling that everything was going to be okay, that the sun was going to come out again and burn away the cold and the fog, and that it would be another gorgeous day, which it was not. Uh, I stopped for lunch just after midday and sat down on a rock, took out my last couple cliff bars, um, and began to feel this throbbing pain in my right foot, in my right toe, to be specific, and uh, so I pulled off my boot, peeled off my woolen sock, and saw that the sock underneath was a little crusty at the toe for some reason, so I peeled that off real carefully and saw that my big right toe had cracked straight down the middle and the left side had had welled up and was a deep purple blood color, I guess, and some of it had seeped out. Um, To this day, I'm not entirely sure why that happened. I'm guessing my boots were just the wrong size, but luckily for me, my feet were too cold and numb at this point for me to feel too much. So I put my boot back on and, and just kept trucking forward. And by this point, I was in a pretty sad state, to be honest. I, uh, I was cold, I was hungry, I was tired, I was a little wet. But the only thing that kept me moving forward was, was the idea of calling my dad, admitting defeat, and seeing that, that smirk that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I did. I kept trucking forward. I eventually reached the camp store, only to find that it was closed because of course it is the middle of winter and no one's camping in the middle of winter, so of course the camp store is not going to be open in the middle of winter. So at this point, there's really just not much I can do. So I, I uh, swallowed my pride, called my dad, and uh, I had a good couple of hours sitting on the side of that mountain to think up of my defense, you know, my, my excuses, the, what I would throw his way when he started to tell me, you know, I told you so, you should have listened to me. <clears throat> so he comes, takes him a couple hours, but eventually he comes, I get in the car. At this point, I'm thinking the best defense is an offense, so I uh, give him a hard time for taking so long. But then, <laughs> <laughs> after, after a little while, I sort of realize that he's not, He's not attacking me for some reason. He's not telling me I told you so. He's not giving me that smirk. In fact, surprisingly, he seemed genuinely worried about my well-being. Who knew that that's what parents do, I guess. (laughs) So eventually, after I realized that I didn't have to be on the defense, I sort of settled back, uh, relaxed, and eventually had one of the greatest hamburgers I've ever eaten. Thank you.
2: Name a perfect face to match the girl. I love to write the supernatural magic, witches, vampires. I was 13 when I first told my mother I wanted to write vampires. And if I told her I was dropping out of middle school, I won the lottery, and I was going to marry Donald Trump, she would look less surprised. (laughs) One of my favorite characters has always been a girl named Victoria. I loved her because she wasn't me. She was strong, and she was powerful, and she wasn't afraid to tell you exactly what she thought of you. But, like everyone, she had a weakness. She was deaf. I was 14 when I first created Victoria. That was three and a half years before my first hearing test. That was three and a half years before I knew. So,
3: maybe I knew
2: all along. I remember it was March my senior year. It wasn't raining at the time, but it rained earlier that day. I was taking a class period when I was called down to the office. I remember walking down the hallway hoping the same thing every night. High schooler hopes. Early dismissal. Early dismissal. Early <laughs> It wasn't the really. That note has a very
4: My name's Kate. I am a first-year ASL interpreting major, and when I was a little girl, I was a jerk. I was mean to everyone around me, especially my grandmother who had lived with me at the time. I would call her names. I would make fun of her. In general, I was just rude. To be fair, I was an eight-year-old girl and could argue that I didn't know any better. I definitely did. By the time I was 13, my grandmother had moved back to Texas, and I was living with my mom. My mom and I were really, really close, and I happened to be struggling with a severe depression at the time. I was sitting with my mom, talking to her about what I had to do to get out of this funk, I suppose, that I have been in, when I came upon the realization that I have been a terrible human being for most of my life. I I was just terrible Um, and I realized that a huge part of the reason behind my depression was the fact that I had so much guilt towards the way I had treated my grandmother when I was younger so I made the decision that to move past this I had to apologize to my grandmother and that wasn't something that I could do over the phone when she's in Texas and I'm in Ohio. So I decided the next time that I saw her, I would say my piece. Then about a year later, my grandmother came to visit Ohio and I spent the entire time she was there looking for the perfect time to have this hard conversation. But the perfect time never really came. And I think that the perfect time for those kind of conversations never does come. That is until about March or so of 2014. My grandmother had moved back to Ohio and was living in hospice about 30 minutes away from my house. We went to visit her all the time, even though she was almost completely unresponsive at the time. One day in particular, um, we were heading home from being with my grandmother. I was in the car with my mom, and I turned to my mom and I said, "Hey." Is there any way that tomorrow when we go visit my grandmother that I could have a moment alone with her so that I could say my piece? And my mom was like, of course, you could have asked that like forever ago. She's been here for like three months, Kate, get your life together. (laughs) And I was like, all right, but but this is it. You know, I'm finally going to do this thing that I've been trying to do for years at this point. So I went home, went to sleep, and... I woke up to my mother. Uh, she was in the middle of my room, standing with like, a tear running down her face, and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I knew exactly what she was going to say. My grandmother had passed away at 3 a.m. that morning. I never got to say I'm sorry. I, it's, honestly, it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. Uh, I struggled with the words that I never got to say. For years, I had trouble forming relationships because of it. But, as they say, you just put one foot in front of the other, and you keep going, and that's what I did until this past summer. I was sitting at my dad's computer looking through some old photos and uh, home videos when I came across a video of the most amazing woman that I'd ever known sitting in a blue and white hospital gown. Uh, I I clicked the video and I listened to her say, hello Kate and Jack, I've seen your pictures and you are so beautiful. Granny loves you and wishes I could give you that big hug right now but in person, but maybe pretty soon. Grandma loves you and misses you so. Listening to my grandmother say that. in her heavy Irish accent came with a realization. I realized my grandmother already knew. I didn't have to tell her. My grandmother knew me better than anyone on this planet and could read me like the pages in one of her favorite Irish novels. As much as sometimes I still wish that I could have said my piece, I know I wasn't meant to. This was the biggest learning experience of my life, and my grandmother gave me that. Because of that experience, I'm no longer that terribly mean jerk of an eighth grader that I was 11 years ago. I strive to be just half the woman that my grandmother was. This experience taught me to be kind and to be forgiving and to always assume the best in people. And more than anything, of course, it taught me to Say what you need to say before it's too late. Thank you.
5: Hi, I'm Dalu Rodriguez. I'm a theater major. This is my speech. Isn't it bizarre how some of us adapt to certain kind of comfort zones, and we stay living that way, even though we're not completely satisfied with what we're doing or where we're at? It's almost like we're afraid of doing things out of the ordinary, even though maybe that's exactly what we want to do. I believe the key is in challenging yourself, and I like to challenge myself. You see, ever since I was a little girl, I've always had this dream. Movies and theater. I would always be lying on the grass, looking up at the sky and imagining myself on a huge stage with a bunch of people singing and dancing around around me, a big spotlight shining on my made-up face and tied up hair while I recited lines from Shakespeare. Around that time as well, there probably wasn't a bigger Disney Channel fan than myself. I mean it. It was something about the way they overreacted to everything that fascinated me. And I also wanted to appear in millions of TV, saying, Hi, I'm Dali Rodriguez, and you're watching Disney Channel. <laughs> but so I made that the first goal in my life that I just had to achieve, be a Disney Channel star. But as I thought it through over and over again, I realized How am I gonna be a Disney Channel star if I don't even know how to speak English? You see, I'm from Puerto Rico, and our main language is Spanish. So I somehow convinced my mother to enroll me into this bilingual school where I learned how to speak and write in English decently. So when I knew enough English to be a Disney Channel star, I realized I no longer wanted to be a Disney Channel star, but I still had this passion, theater. So I I realized that I should study in the states where I could get more opportunities in this career that I so very much wanted. And I began researching American colleges. And I learned the expenses of studying in an American college, and I said to myself, there's no way I'm gonna study there. This is for rich people. Never did it cross my mind that, that there are such things as scholarships, but anyway. So this day after lunch break in my English class, there was this lady that was giving an orientation on this college in the States, and it was Goshen College. I am gonna be honest, I wasn't paying any attention at all. I wasn't interested because I really did think that colleges here were very expensive. So I counted every second and every minute that passed by But it was until she handed out these brochures with information in Goshen College's majors and minors, and as I glanced my eyes through the information, I saw a very familiar word, theater, my theater. So I visited in November 2016, and when I walked into Goshen College's little humble theater, I quickly fell in love, and I, realized that this is where I wanted to be. I knew that it was gonna be a challenge because I was gonna be far away from home and my family, but I also knew that all my hard work that I put into learning a new language was worth it. So moral of the story is get out of your comfort zones. Try new things because it will take you far. Thank you.
3: Good morning, I'm Luis Ramirez, and I am a first year here at Goshen College. I had never really given much thought to names or kind of the weight that they carry um, and kind of what a name can leave behind. Not until my sophomore year of high school when my parents informed me that I was going to be legally adopted. Now this wasn't gonna be a big change. It wasn't gonna change my life or anything. It was uh, my stepdad at the time Uh, was just going to have more legal rights. Uh, Throughout the story, I'm going to reference my dad, which is the one here in the United States, and my biological dad, which is in Costa Rica, just to clarify. And so my parents took me aside and they talked to me and kind of explained uh, the process and what would happen and how we we would have this opportunity to change our names if we so pleased. At the time, I still had my biological dad's name, and I was Luis Contreras. And um, my stepdad kind of had a separate conversation with me as well. And he kind of explained to me how ultimately it was going to be my decision. And like there was really like no pressure. I could do whatever I wanted. And it was during this conversation where I kind of realized how much this meant to him. And I kind of began to like ponder and think of my name and what it means to me. And I kind of, you kind of go grow attached to your name. Um, as I had. I kind of thought of like all my friends and how they knew me and um, even just the last name and so I wasn't I was kind of unsure going into this process. So the day came of February of my sophomore year in high school and we skipped school that day and this might not seem like a big thing but usually uh, my dad is very against us skipping school unless it's something like big or important like the Star Wars movies that he let us skip for. (laughs) And so we, we kind of have like a family day together and we're all kind of, we know what's coming but no one's like really addressing it yet until we go to the courtroom, or the courthouse, excuse me. As we get there, it wasn't really what I was expecting. It it was just kind of this big, gray, dull building here in Elkhart and so we go in and we're kind of just sitting around. We brought the whole family. Um, everyone's uh, kind of just thinking it's, it's very quiet and then my, my mom's kind of tearing up. She's always tearing up. And I'm just kind of sitting there thinking and reflecting. This is kind of like the first time I had done so, especially towards my biological dad. See, growing up, my biological dad uh, would stay in contact. He does live in Costa Rica, so he would call on our birthdays, holidays, whatever it might be, to kind of ask how we're doing, how everything is, wish us well. And we would hear again from him in a year or so. It wasn't until my eighth grade year where I got my own cell phone, so the calls started coming more directly to me. And at first they continued to come, but then after a while I kind of had this one year where my birthday's in December, so my birthday came, Christmas came, then New Year's, everything passed and I never got a call from my biological dad. And then maybe like a month or so later, he, he called. It was a very brief conversation. It was like, hey, happy birthday, Merry Christmas, happy new year, I hope you're doing well. And that's kind of when I like, really began to think and sort of resent my biological dad for some reason. And I always felt like growing up, I didn't have a really good father figure. Like I always took it that way, especially when I fought with my dad here in the States. And so I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm not really emotional, so I wasn't really crying or anything. And then my grandpa walks in, my dad's dad. And he's a pastor, so he's used to dealing with like grievances and a lot of funerals and stuff. So he usually always knows what to say, and um, he's very comforting. But that day, he didn't say a lot to me. He just kind of walked up to me and hugged me. Um, he's pretty tall, and so that's kind of like the first time I felt like almost a child in a while. And he just hugged me really tight. He didn't say a word. And that's kind of when I began to cry a little bit. We were just waiting for the judge to be ready, so I kind of composed myself, and then we got to go into the judge's chambers. We're sitting there, and the judge starts talking, and the lawyer, and they drone on and on. I'm not really paying any attention. I'm still thinking. And thinking about how the dad that I had here in the United States had been with us for as long as I knew. All of my memories of him were actual memories of me going through a tough time and him being there for me. And my biological dad, all I really had were pictures and one, one or two visits, where I could barely remember. And so I was sitting there thinking, still about the name. I, I had mostly made up my mind, thinking that I was going to change it, but I wasn't certain yet. And that's when I hear, um, I have an older brother, that's when I hear him speak. Uh, they were going in or, order from eldest to youngest, so I knew I was next. I hear him say his part, and then it's my turn. And I remember just thinking and then uh, she she's like, can you state your name, please? And then I said, uh, Luis Humberto Ramirez. And I remember looking over at my dad and I don't think I've ever seen my dad more proud in my life. And this whole time I had this resentment towards my biological dad thinking I didn't have a father growing up. But what I didn't know is I had had a father and or I didn't have a father related to me by blood, but I had a father in every other aspect of the word. Thank you.
6: Good morning, I am Autumn Hilton and I'm not really sure what my major is at this point and I'm also never really sure how to respond when people ask me where I'm from. The summer after my freshman year in high school, my dad got a new teaching job in Bridgewater, South Dakota. Now, I had done most of my growing up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It has a population of around 180,000 people, which may not sound that big to you, but that's the biggest city in South Dakota. Bridgewater, on the other hand, is home to around 400 people, half of which live in the nursing home, so it's a little different. (laughs) I was kind of nervous about moving there, but my mom was super excited. She had been reading chicken magazines all summer, so she felt like she was finally ready to have a chicken flock of her own. Um, So she was really excited about the barn and everything. Uh, Bridgewater was kind of a culture shock for me. For example, uh, in my sophomore year, we all had to take the dreaded speech class, and one of our assignments was the how-to speech. We all had to teach our fellow classmates a certain skill. Most of these speeches were held outside, and I learned lots of things from my classmates. I learned how to skin a dead pheasant, I learned how to bottle feed a baby goat, and I also learned how to set a live trap. (laughs) So (laughs) the transition from the city to the country was kind of a challenge for me but the people of the community made it a lot easier. For example, our next-door neighbor, Larry Hofer, who lives like a mile and a half down the road, he's like this 80-year-old farm guy who wears overalls, and he would come by almost every day in his four-wheeler and drop off like a dozen ears of sweet corn. Uh, This was pretty generous of him, but I think he just wanted somebody to talk to. He would also come by when we weren't home to snoop around and see what sort of projects we were working on. Uh, Another really welcoming family was the Schultz family. They had four children, and their youngest son at the time was in sixth grade. His name was Riley, and he was running his own successful farm-fresh egg business. So around a month after we'd moved to Bridgewater, they invited us on a late-night chicken heist, and my mom was pumped. So for those of you who know anything about chickens, you know that the best time to kidnap them is at night, when they're deaf, blind, and hopefully asleep. So we met them at 10.30, and my mom and I piled into the back of their pickup truck, smashed between their daughter, Bailey, and their son, Riley, and proceeded to head an hour and a half west to their chicken supplier's house, Ulila. Ulila is this tiny, ancient old lady, and she is the owner of row upon row upon row of chicken coops. She also has a few peacocks and an albino elk, so she's pretty cool. <laughs> so we arrived at her house at around midnight, and I was kind of skeptical. I didn't really know where I was at, and it was completely dark outside. Riley was wearing this super dorky headlamp, and it was casting all these eerie shadows all over the barnyard. He was actually feeling pretty confident at the time. He bounced out of the pickup truck and into the chicken coops, and he knew exactly how to tell if a chicken was a good chicken or a bad chicken. So he would grab them by their ankles, still asleep, and haul them off to their dog crate. Around the fifth or sixth time of him going in and out of these chicken coops, he asked my mom and I, he said, how many chickens do you guys even want? And we looked at each other and we were like, how many chickens do we really need? Four or seven, nine? He piped in and said, well, I'm getting 15 chickens. So we went with his advice and got 15 chickens. We let him do the job for us. He went back into the chicken coop and grabbed five five black chickens by their ankles in one hand and five white chickens by their ankles in the other hand and then unceremoniously dumped them into our dog crate and then went right back in and grabbed five more red chickens the same way. And just like that, we were the proud new owners of a flock of 15 chickens with no experience. So moving to Bridgewater was kind of an uncomfortable experience for me, but it taught me the importance of living in a close-knit, supportive community. So during my college search, that's kind of what I was looking for. And that's why I'm in front of you here today at Goshen College, because the community on campus kind of reminded me of my home in Bridgewater.
7: Good morning, my name is Emmy Roop and I'm a double music and social work major from Kidron, Ohio. So it is a truth universally acknowledged by six-year-olds everywhere that when your mom says you can bring all the toys you want, you literally bring all the toys. And when I say all the toys, I mean a giant plastic box of Barbies that's big enough to fit, a small sheep, This, of course, didn't seem at all excessive to my six-year-old self. All I knew is that my mom said we were going on some sort of adventure, a sleepover, I don't know, but it was bound to require an emergency Barbie or two. So I lugged that giant box off to my mom's car, along with a couple of suitcases and some sleeping bags, and we left. It was weird. The house looked more empty than I'd ever seen it. It was almost like there was one person living there instead of three. That's because there was. That giant box would grace my first second home of the divorce. Of course, I wouldn't find this out for a couple of weeks. You know those fair rides where you're spinning and the floor drops out and you just have to pray that inertia keeps you stuck to the wall? That's what the news felt like. I kept asking myself, how could this possibly be happening? I mean, yes, my parents fight. A lot. And I dread coming home to find the newest screaming match awaiting me. And I don't get to see my mom in the evenings because she's just trying to deal with the mental strain of living in our house. But at least they're married, right? That's the perfect family. Let's skip my many failed parent trap experiments and go to my senior year of high school. I'm standing backstage in my high school auditorium, still trying to wipe the lion makeup off my face, while a series of munchkins, flying monkeys, and farm hands take the stage. I remember squeezing my friend Sarah's bright green hand as tight as I possibly could to keep myself from breaking down into tears over the finality of my high school theater career. And for the final time, I graced that stage and took my bow. And for the final time, there were my parents sitting smack dab in the middle of the front row. I'm about 95% sure that their butt indents are still ingrained in those seats because every concert or play, there they were smiling at me turning my face into about 50 different shades of scarlet. But this time was different. I wasn't embarrassed, I was just grateful because there wasn't a chair nor any resentment between them. We could all just enjoy the bittersweetness of the moment together. I remember the summer before eighth grade, I was at camp and I remember pulling my counselor aside after the campfire sermon, bombarding her with questions about how, if divorce was a sin, how could my family be as happy as it was? She danced around my question like it was a bee trying to sting her, and then reassuringly concluded with, but who knows what God has in store for you? Maybe someday they'll get back together. I sort of smiled unconvincingly, restraining myself from just screaming, but that's the last thing that I want. And I still feel that way. Yes, my family isn't perfect, no family is, and I could write a whole nother speech about all the negative things that have happened before and after the divorce. But all in all, I've had a really happy life these past 13 years. Besides the fact that my parents have always been there to support me every weekend when i didn't have performances or practices or was hanging out with friends we were spending them together as a family even when it was most difficult we even got to the point where christmas morning spent us all under the tree opening presents it would look so picturesque you wouldn't even notice they weren't wearing wedding rings i am always going to face questions like i asked that summer before eighth grade And I'm still going to have to deal with patronizing adults looking at me like I'm Ellen Foster when I say that my parents are divorced. But after having the traditional broken family, I know I have a very different definition of broken than I did when I was six years old, and I've never felt more whole. Thank you.
0: Great job, folks. One more round of applause. Thank you so much. And please congratulate these folks if you see them during
8: the day. We have one more announcement. Good morning. Uh, My name is Alison Prigge, and I'm a sophomore uh, player of the Goshen College women's basketball team and I was asked to speak to you guys briefly today about uh, some of the posters that you may have seen um, hung up around campus. So our women's team, along with all of the other women's basketball teams in the Crossroad League, are coming together to uh, work to raise money for this charity called Destiny Rescue. And Destiny Rescue is an internationally recognized Christian nonprofit organization dedicated to rescuing children trapped in the sex trade. Their vision is to rescue the sexually exploited and enslaved, restore the abused, protect the vulnerable, empower the poor, and to be a voice for those who can't speak up for themselves. And our goal as a team is to try and raise $3,000, which will be able to save uh, two children from sex trafficking. And tonight we play Indiana Wesleyan at 7 at home, and we're asking for your support. And there's a lot of different ways that you can help make a difference. Uh, So, first off, we are selling black T-shirts, which I'm wearing, and they are $10. Um, You don't have to buy one, and if you still want to come to the game without purchasing one, uh, we just ask that you wear a black shirt in uh, hopes to support the cause. Uh, Secondly, you can purchase a drink from Java, who's generously offered to donate 10% of all their purchases to go towards the cause. Uh, You can also donate by purchasing a gold or Purple Ticket, which will have your name on it and will be hung up and displayed in the gym tonight. Or you can go to www.destinyrescue.org and make a donation online. Uh, Lastly, there's halftime games, a dunk contest. You can win prizes. And it's an opportunity to support the team as well as a really good cause. So we just ask that you guys um, are willing to do that. Thank you. You guys are dismissed.